1 John 4.8 tells us that God is love. Now that truth is always somewhere in the back of our minds, often. And yet when we sin, that truth is, is difficult often to bring forward. Satan loves to discourage God's people and lead them to doubt God's love. John Bunyan, um, John Bunyan, he, he had such wrestlings. And he records one of these vividly in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Listen to how Bunyan describes how Satan tempted him to despair and yet how he kept returning to the Lord in prayer. Bunyan writes, Now while the scriptures lay before me and laid sin anew at my door, because that's often what happens when we read the scriptures, isn't it? Isn't it that we are awakened to some sin in our lives? He says, so he's reading the scriptures and sin was laid anew at his door. And yet he was encouraged by Luke chapter 18, verse 1, to pray. He said, Then the tempter again assailed me very sorely, suggesting that neither the mercy of God nor yet the blood of Christ did at all concern me, nor could they help me for my sin. Therefore it was but vain to pray. Yet, thought I, I will pray. But, said the tempter, your sin is unpardonable. Well, said I, I will pray. It is for no good, said he. Yet, said I, I will pray. So I went to prayer to God. And while I was at prayer, I uttered words to this effect. Lord, Satan tells me that neither your mercy nor Christ's blood is sufficient to save my soul. Lord, will I honor you most by believing you will and can? Or him by believing you neither will nor can. Lord, I would honor you by believing you will and can. When sin was brought before his eyes, and when Satan tempted him to despair, Bunyan, he fought to believe in the character and the love of God and his mercy in Jesus Christ. And he went to the Lord in prayer. And it's my prayer that as we study God's words together this morning, as we're faced with our own failings, our own disobedience, our own sin, that we would, like Bunyan, fight to believe the truth of Scripture, that God is love, and that we should return to Him, as Bunyan did in prayer. We would fight to believe that our God is love, and that our God loves us. I pray that when faced with our sin and disobedience, that we would not turn away from God, but that we would return to Him and run to Him, because we are persuaded that He loves us with an everlasting love. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles and open your Bibles to uh, Hosea chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles provided this morning, you can find the passage on page 757. This passage is about returning to the Lord of love. We've got to remember a little bit about the book of Hosea itself. Hosea, he is an 8th century prophet who's ministering to the northern kingdom of Israel just before the fall, the kingdom's fall in 722 BC. Hosea, he has been called by God to explain God's message of judgment and mercy, to explain God's love for his people. And he's also been called to exemplify God's love. To God's people. So Hosea in his own life was called to marry a woman by the name of Gomer. And it would turn out she would be unfaithful to him. And Hosea explains and exemplifies God's love in part by going and pursuing Gomer and purchasing her back after she had wandered away from him. 
was mostly what we saw in chapters 1 to 3 of the book of Hosea. The remaining portion of Hosea's work, chapters 4 to 14, are likely a compilation of Hosea's preaching and prophetic ministry among the people of Israel. And in these chapters, Hosea stands as a covenant advocate for God. He prosecutes God's case against Israel. He shows Israel how they've been wayward, how they've wandered away. And he calls for the people of Israel to return to the Lord, just as he called for his wife to come back to him. As we turn to examine Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 1, we hear Hosea continue his plea to the northern kingdom of Israel to return to the Lord. And if we could summarize the the thrust of this passage In just a a sentence, it would be this. Return to the Lord of love. That's the burden of this passage. Return to the Lord of love. And, And in this passage, we see that our God wants us to know that He's demonstrated His love for us in Jesus Christ. Our God wants us to know that His heart is full of love for His disobedient children. It's full of love for us when we're disobedient and when we're undergoing His discipline. And this should amaze us. We... We should be grieved by our disobedience and we should be grateful for God's loving discipline. We should respond to the Lord's loving kindness in repentance and faith. That's how we return to Him. We should abandon our love for the world and love of self for a wholehearted love for God. We should return to the Lord of love. Just three simple points this morning. Number one, God loves His disobedient children. God loves His disobedient children. Number two, God disciplines those He loves. God disciplines those He loves. And number three, God delights in faithful love. God delights in faithful love. That's the outline for the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point. God loves His disobedient children. God loves His disobedient children. This is what we see in Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Follow along as I read the first four verses of chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Well, I trust you see in these verses, it's not hard to see that God loves his disobedient children. He says it right there in verse 1, doesn't he? When Israel's a child, I loved him. Israel is here identified as a child and as a son. That's just how Moses identified the people of Israel back in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 to 23, Moses was to say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. God's love for Israel was shown in their childhood as a nation. He multiplied their offspring even when they were enslaved in Egypt. God showed his love for Israel when he called them out of being slaves of Egypt. He called them out of the bondage of slavery. God showed his love for Israel as he kept calling out to his son to show him the way in which he ought to go. God demonstrated his love for his son in teaching him to walk in his ways, to walk in his law. God took Israel by the hand and and taught him how to walk. 
It's like a, a, a father giving his son his, his fingers, right? Where a kiddo grabs onto his father's fingers and you teach them to walk and you bring them along. Come along. We're coming out of Egypt now. We're going to walk through the wilderness. We're going to go to the promised land. God was leading his son like a loving father, teaching him to walk. All of his ways of interacting with his growing son were perfectly kind and patient and loving. Where Pharaoh in Egypt put heavy and harsh yokes upon Israel, God instead gave them a yoke that was easy, a burden that was light. And just comb through these verses again. Do you see God's amazing love? All the ways that they describe what God has done. He, he loved Israel, verse 1. He called Israel, verse 2. He taught Israel, verse 3. He condescended, he bent down to lead and feed Israel, verse 4. This is love demonstrated by God. God cares for his finite and needy children. God loves his children. And yet these verses teach us that God loves his disobedient children. Consider all the ways they describe Israel's actions. There in verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. Like parents know this, right? You call and call to your child. And they pretend they don't hear you. And they just you know, keep going away. Well, that's what's happening. God is calling out the people of Israel. And yet they keep going away, further and further away. And as parents, we know that they can, they can hear us, and yet they keep going away. But God, He kept loving His children, and still, what did they keep doing? Well, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. We see this recorded in the history of Israel in books like Judges and Kings and Chronicles. God has a long history of loving His children, and Israel has a long history of turning away. And is God, is not God long suffering with his children? Is he not patient with his children? And is he not the same toward us? Israel went away, they went after other gods, and they were ignorant of God's sustaining grace to them. You see, there in verse 3, we're told that God, he took them up by the arms, but they did not know that it was God who healed them. You see, they ascribed their sustainment to other gods and nations when they were facing some geopolitical crisis as a nation, and yet they were relieved from that crisis. They attributed that rescue, that relief, to someone other than their God. No, it was God who saved them and rescued them from these various crises they faced. We might even say that they were willfully ignorant of God's sovereign, saving, and sustaining grace. When God called Israel out of Egypt, as verse 1 says there, he was picturing something greater. Or perhaps we should say someone greater that still lay ahead in the future. Israel as a son, in Israel as a son, God was picturing how the true and eternal Son of God might come out of Egypt in order to set God's people free. This prophecy from Hosea was anticipating a greater and richer fulfillment that's what Matthew chapter 2, verse 15 communicates. And our brother Curtis Myers is going to help us think about the richness of this prophecy and promise tonight during our evening service. But for now, we simply need to understand that as a child, Jesus went into Egypt. He was brought there by his earthly father, Joseph. He would later be called up out of Egypt to live a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. And every call that the Father placed upon the Lord Jesus, he lived differently than Israel. Every call that God the Father placed upon Jesus, Jesus obeyed. He said at one point in his life, it is his food to do the Father's will. Jesus lived a perfect life 
of doing the Father's will. And the more Jesus was called, the more Jesus came and did the will of His Father. He, he never sacrificed to the Baals. He never brought offerings to false God. He was faithful where Israel and we have been faithless. It was His joy and delight to do everything that the Father taught Him, as He says in John's Gospel. And He did it for disobedient sinners like you and me. The truth is that we've all been enslaved by our sin. Like Israel was enslaved in Egypt. We would like to think that we have mastery over our sin, that we can control these various sins that we struggle with in our lives. But if we're honest, we know that sin really has mastery over us. Why else do we keep returning from time to time to our sin? Jesus came so that God the Father might call us out of that bondage and set us free. But there was a price for that freedom. And it was Jesus' loving obedience in life and in death. As Paul tells us, Jesus demonstrated God's love for sinners in a supreme way by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Since every sin deserves the anger and judgment of God, Jesus endured the anger and judgment of God for every sin that God's children have committed or ever would commit. But Jesus' death was not the end of God's love for His disobedient children. Three days after His death on the cross. God gave us the hope of eternal life and forgiveness of our sins by raising Jesus Christ from the dead in exodus from the tomb. And now we might become God's children, His beloved children. We might become sons and daughters of the Most High God by turning from our sins and placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true and faithful Son. So friend, if you're, you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to do that, to turn from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus Christ today. John's gospel tells us that all who do receive Jesus, that is to all who believe in his name become children of God. Those who are children of God receive the same kind of love from God that we see described here. A love that calls us, a love that teaches us, a love that leads us and guides us safely home to glory. For those of us who know and consider ourselves children of God by faith in His Son, there's yet more we need to apply to this text from our, to our lives. In view of the love and mercies of God, we ought to give thanks. Brothers and sisters, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service, as we remember Christ, our Passover Lamb, remember to give thanks in your heart for God's redeeming love who set you free from slavery to sin. Remember how He has not only called you, but carried you through to this very day. All of His providences that have either spared you grief or sustained you in them, remember that they're from His hands and that He's been with you every step of the way. In view of the love and mercies of God revealed in Jesus Christ, we ought to obey. Surely that's an application from this text. We ought not be disobedient children. Too often we are. But by the gracious help of God's Spirit, we ought to be increasingly obedient children. This side of glory will never be perfectly obedient, and our God knows that. Still, as best we can, we ought to obey all the way, and right away, and with a happy heart when our God calls us and commands us. If His love has called us out of slavery to sin, like He called Israel out of slavery in Egypt, then when He calls, we should answer with glad-hearted obedience. It means we have to turn away from this world's idols and gods. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, 5, we must put to death what is earthly in us. 
We must do away with sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. God's love for disobedient children like us ought to shape our parenting and our personal relationships. God loved and called and taught and led and fed his disobedient children, and Christian parents must do the same. We must love our children, and we should love them in such a way that they have no legitimate claim that our love can ever be doubted. We should call them, should call to them, and when they do not turn, we should keep calling to them. We should not grow weary of calling and calling and calling. Our God does not grow weary of doing that with us. We should teach them to walk physically and spiritually. We should lead them with clarity and compassion. We should bend down to look them in the eye, play with them on the floor, and teach them at their level of learning. It's so tempting to compare our parenting uh, with others in the world, in our schools, or in our church family. But the real comparison we must make is with God the Father. How much does our parenting look like His? How much does our love look like His? And when I consider the love of God the Father in a text like this, I'm often ashamed of my own parenting. It reveals disobedience in my own heart and my need for more of God's grace. Our children's disobedience is never warrant for our own. Here in our moments of failure is an opportunity to show our children what it looks like to seek God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of others. Our failures as Christian parents are opportunities to tell, tell our children that though our love may fail, God's love will never fail. And we should bring God's love to bear in our personal relationships too. As we live and move and have our being in close proximity with other sinners, we're bound to stumble upon disobedience or have it uncovered in our own lives. We would be wise to remember God's love for His disobedient people. Seek to show that love and in love, call our brothers and sisters back into his light and warmth and love. We should gently show our brothers and sisters the idols that they're going after and teach them according to God's word. We should help hold them up when they're weak, when they stumble, when they fall. Remind them of God's good fatherly care and seek to ease their burdens. And we should pray that they would do the same with us and that we would receive that as the blessing it is to shape us more like the Lord Jesus. We have to call our brothers and sisters to return to the Lord of love, even if that means enduring the Lord's loving discipline. That's actually what Hosea brings into view there in verses 5 to 11. In verses 1 to 4, we learn that God loves his disobedient children. And in verses 5 to 11, we learn that God disciplines those he loves. That's our second point. God disciplines those he loves. Follow along as I read Hosea chapter 11, verses 5 to 11. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, 
The Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Well, these verses, they they tell us something we've actually already heard before in the book of Hosea. They tell us that Israel will suffer exile and that they will return from exile. In some ways, this is merely a restatement from what we heard in Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. There we learned that Israel would be carried off to exile, that they would be bereft of false loves, the gods of the other nations, and be made to anticipate good and right loves, the coming of the messianic king and holy worship. God's loving purpose in laying upon Israel this kind of discipline is to lead them to seek the Lord in repentance as they receive their long-awaited king with joyful fear. The, the purpose of this period of time, this exile, is to prepare Israel for their return to God. That's why God disciplines those whom he loves, to draw them back to himself. Well, there's more to the story with these verses, but that God will discipline his people by sending them into exile is what they communicate at a high level. Even as we begin to think about this, it's likely that we have some internal hesitancies. A discipline is such a foreboding word. But the truth is, is that discipline is necessary. From the preceding verses, we, we saw that Israel was disobedient. They, they went away from the Lord. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals, verse 2. And here in verse 5, we're, we're told that Israel refused to return to the Lord of love. And in verse 6, it becomes clear that Israel, they listen to their own counsels. They listen to their own wisdom instead of the Lord's wisdom. Verse 7, we're told that this is kind of the, the attitudinal bent of Israel. It's as if they were, they were determined to go away, to desert the Lord. Again, every sin deserves the anger and judgment of God. But instead of judgment, they receive discipline. And here we must be clear, discipline is, is different than judgment. The judgment of God's people is ultimately poured out upon His Son, God's Son, Jesus Christ. Still, God often, God's people often undergo God's corrective discipline, either to remove some sin, to inculcate righteousness, to engender greater trust and Christ-likeness, to wean us from the love of the world, to give us greater affections for the world to come, or to accomplish some other divine design. Some have been tripped up by these verses because in verse 5, we're told that they shall not return to the land of Egypt. But then there in verse 11, you see, we're told that they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. Why would Israel come from Egypt if they had not returned to Egypt? Well, Hebrew scholars point out that there's an alternate translation of the Hebrew uh, for this verse. The Hebrew word for not in our English translations is low. Ordinarily, it's translated not or no, but occasionally it can be translated as an assertive. In other words, this, it's possible to translate verse 5 as they shall surely return to the land of Egypt. And in fact, if you look, you might have a footnote there in your translation. Some of your translations may even supply a footnote to that effect. To complicate matters, or perhaps to clarify them, uh, in Hosea chapter 8 verse 13 and in Hosea chapter 9 verse 3, we're told that Israel would return to Egypt. So, will Israel return to Egypt or not? There are several ways to harmonize Hosea. I won't work through all of them now. Let me just give you my bottom line. Um, Hosea uses Egypt as both a literal place and a metaphorical place for bondage. And I think that he's using it as a metaphor for bondage here. 
uh, as with Hosea 8.13 and 9.3, I think we ought to understand Israel here as returning to bondage. So I think surely is probably a better translation here. And that bondage is going to be under the Assyrian king. So Israel will suffer discipline by being thrust into exile and bondage under the Assyrian king. They will suffer discipline, severe discipline, but not destruction. In verse 6, we're told that the sword shall rage against their cities and consume their bars, their gates, and devour them. This is what Assyria would do in 722 B.C. But even as this is taking place, the people of Israel might call out to God. You see that in verse 7. But God, He will not raise them up in victory over Assyria. Not this time. He, He will not allow them to escape this discipline. Israel had rebelled against the Lord for far too long Divine discipline and correction needs to be brought to this disobedient child. See, a a parent might endure disobedience for a time. But then there comes a time where you just have to say, Son, daughter, we need to correct this now. And that time has come. Israel had rebelled against the Lord for far too long. And divine discipline needs to be brought. And as we learn in Proverbs, as we learn in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, that the Lord disciplines the one He loves And chastises every son whom he receives. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And the discipline that Israel will receive will certainly be painful. We should be careful to recognize that the Lord's discipline is restrained. It does not amount to Israel's destruction. We see this in the heart-wrenching questions of verses 8 and 9. The Lord uses uh, Ephraim, which is a a large tribe in the northern kingdom. And Ephraim, often Hosea uses Ephraim as um, a part standing in place for the whole. So Ephraim is here pictured as the northern kingdom. And we see that the Lord cannot totally give up Israel, cannot give up Ephraim. Love will not let him. The Lord will not hand over Israel. Love will not let him. He cannot treat Israel like Adma or Zeboim. Uh, these, uh, these were the suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were kind of the Arlington and Alexandria of Washington, D.C., if you will. So what happened when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed was that the suburbs were destroyed as well. And Yahweh is saying that he will not let that happen to his people. He will not execute his burning anger on Israel. He is God. He is not man. And therefore, he does not carry out his discipline like fallen men. Verse 9. God does not fly off the handle in discipline. His discipline is purposefully and perfectly controlled. And here too is yet another lesson for parenting and our personal relationships. One of the things that we need to recognize as we consider the Lord's discipline is that in the moment it does not bring Him delight. The questions of verses 8 and 9, they exude anguish. This churning is taking place. It's what they picture. While God is impassable, And that his very godness is not effected by our sin or suffering. The language of verses 8 and 9 tell us that our God has affections for his sinful people. His heart recoils at the thought of giving up his child in total and utter wrath. He he cannot do it. He, He will not do it. His heart is so full of tender warmth and compassion toward his people. That the prophet uses human language. Language that we can understand. That conveys that if we can put it like this, God's heart breaks. We know something of this on an analogical level. As a parent, when I see my child get hurt, my my, my body and my heart, soul will will wince in pain. Sometimes uh, 
Uh, we, we, we experience this. And yet, my essence as a person and my purpose has not changed. I remember when my son broke his femur a few years ago that I physically hurt and emotionally hurt for him. It happened early in the evening one day and they told us that he would have to have surgery the next day. So we had to wait till the afternoon of the next day. And so I stayed up with him all that night and every time he would cry out in pain, I would seek to relieve it. I called the nurse and said, right, we need more medication. My purpose toward him had not changed. I wanted to, him to be free of pain. And yet I, as a person, had not changed. My love continued for him, even in this difficult circumstance. That's something like what is occurring. And I think as parents, as bosses and elders and authority figures of, of various kinds, we, we need to have this in mind as we think about our own discipline. Is, is your discipline, is our discipline flooded with compassion? We certainly must be tough on sin and yet tender with the sinner. Is, is our discipline like that? I remember being disciplined by my father. It's code word for being spanked. Um, I remember being disciplined by my father and he would say to me with tears in his eyes, Michael, I, I do not want to spank you. It grieved him in that moment. But it's what I needed. And I respect him for that. He knew that it's not only what God's word required of him, but also what love for me required of him. Anytime a father or mother disciplines their children, it should be a heart-wrenching moment. Discipline is not for exacting vengeance, but we hope by the work of the Spirit of God for extracting repentance. Israel was a child who had been disobedient, and he did not know how deadly this disobedience was. Often our children don't know how dangerous patterns of disobedience can be. We as believers sometimes are blind to our patterns of disobedience. And yet they're dangerous for us. And we need to be awakened to them. And the goal for discipline and God's discipline is to awaken Israel to his danger. Not to destroy him. Discipline should help a sinner destroy sin. But it must not destroy the sinner. So there's a, a goal for discipline. And it is for sinners to be restored and to return to the Lord. And that goal, Hosea promises, will be reached. After all of their going away from the Lord, verse 2, we're told that because of the Lord's discipline in exile, they will go after the Lord, verse 10. The Lord will roar like a lion, calling His children, and they will come. Previously, He had called and called and called, and they would not come, but now they will. The image of God's people trembling is, is not an image of fear, but an image of excitement and joy-filled faith. We, we get this in this, uh, the image of this lion roaring and the, the birds flying, right? The, the lion roars, the birds are startled as a flock, and they then fly to the voice of the lion, as it were. And what security and safety God promises here for His people is He promises to return them to their homes. They're going to be ripped out of their homes. And yet here is a promise from God. I will return you to your homes. They must have to go. They have to go through the valley of God's discipline in exile because of their sin. But the exile is not the end. They will be regathered, restored, and returned. 
This happened after the exile too in Israel's history. The people of God were regathered and restored and returned to the land of Canaan. And yet there is a further and greater hope that we have here. We as new covenant believers in Jesus Christ. For like Israel, we too may undergo the discipline of the Lord. And yet his purpose for us in our discipline is to prepare us for glory. But perhaps you're thinking, now wait a minute, are you saying that we're under the discipline of the Lord? In a certain sense, yes. I think verses 10 and 11, once again, they parallel Hebrews chapter 12, which I would commend you to read that chapter later on today. Hebrews 12 reflects on God's fatherly discipline. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, we learn that God disciplines every son he receives. So if you undergo any of the Lord's discipline, or, or if you don't undergo any of the Lord's discipline, you might not be a son is what the writer of the Hebrews says to us. Those who receive God's discipline, he's counting as sons. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, that God, he disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. If you want to share in God's holiness, you have to undergo his discipline. And after we endure the discipline that the Lord has for us here on this earth, after we endure the process of our God fitting us for heaven then we will share in His holiness. As we sang last week, when through fiery trials our pathway shall lie, thy grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. We, as the New Testament people of God, are strangers and exiles, as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. This world, it's not our home. But we're looking forward to the day when the Lion of Judah will descend from heaven with a cry of command, as Paul says in Thessalonians, and call us up to our eternal home. Brothers and sisters, let us give thanks that the Lord loves us, even though we are so often disobedient children. Let us give thanks that He disciplines us in His love so that we might be trained in His righteousness and eventually share in His heavenly holiness. There we will be returned to our garden home where we are always meant to live with Him. And if you find yourself facing difficulty and discipline, then do not regard the Lord's discipline lightly. Do not see it as a vain thing. See it as His love for you. If you find yourself facing difficulty and discipline, then do not grow weary, but see in it God's love of wooing you back to Himself, calling you to return to Him. In the midst of discipline, Strive for peace with everyone. When there is friction in our souls and often in our relationship with the Lord, then there's often friction in our other relationships as well. Be aiming at peace with all. Seek to find other brothers and sisters who are struggling and make sure that they're encouraged to continue trusting in the God of grace. Battle against bitterness in the midst of discipline and see in the burdens that we are enduring in this life as blessings from God to push us into Himself, to draw us into Himself, to call us into Himself and His love for us. Because He wants us to be more like the Savior. God disciplined Israel so that they would return to Him. And He does the same in our lives too. Ultimately, through discipline and indiscipline, let's remember the Lord Jesus Christ. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And we ought to endure discipline for the joy that is set before us, sharing in our God's holiness, seeing him 
face to face, full and unfettered fellowship with our Lord and God. Through discipline, he wants to draw out of us faithful love to him. This is what we uh, reflect upon in our third and final point. God delights in faithful love. God delights in faithful love. And here we're looking at Hosea chapter 11, verse 12, and chapter 12, verse 1. It's a bit of an awkward split here, an unfortunate chapter break. But we'll, we'll unpack that here in a moment. So, so follow along as I read Hosea chapter 11, uh, verse 12, and chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Here, uh, Yahweh is at pains to communicate that he delights in faithful covenant love. That's what he wants from his people. And I'll admit it, that's not... That's not immediately obvious in these verses. It's not immediately obvious that these verses are communicating that God wants, He delights in faithful love. After all, they seem a little strangely out of place, right? We have just thought about how God's people will be restored and returned. That is a high and glorious promise. And yet, suddenly, put before us is Ephraim's lies and deceit. It seems rather disjointed. Uh, What we're told here is that Israel is not dealing faithfully with the Lord. They are, as it were, putting on a show. They're pretending to love the Lord. They're bringing their sacrifices, but really, their, their heart's not with Him. Their hearts are with other gods. as They're offering sacrifices to other nations. They, they pretend to trust the Lord and their geopolitical uh, circumstances, which are frightening. But yet what they're really doing is they're carrying oil to Egypt and forming alliances with other nations. They're, they're placing their hope and trust in those nations. They're dealing deceitfully with the Lord. And we're told that they surround the Lord with lies. It's just, it's, it marks all aspects of their lives. They multiply falsehood. They're dealing, even with their neighbors, their Israelite neighbors, in ways of deceit. They are filled with violence. Bloodshed takes place among their nation. They're pursuing, feeding on the wind. I mean, that doesn't sound filling, does it? It's not meant to. They're feeding on the wind. They're pursuing the east wind. And what Hosea is trying to communicate is they're, they're going after empty and vain things. Especially making covenants with nations who cannot save them. In fact, in the end, one of these nations, Assyria, will not spare them. Assyria will make Israel submit to them. So if there's one reason that the church should not make an alliance with the world is because it's empty and vain, another is because like Assyria, it'll come back to bite the church. We must be careful to place our whole hope and trust in the Lord. These verses, they they seem strangely out of place, and yet I promise you they're not. We can look at all the ways and wickedness of Israel and come to the conclusion, okay, so we don't want to be unfaithful. I guess we could get to that point that way. It's the right idea, but these verses still seem to be in the wrong place. How is it that these verses tell us that God delights in faithful love? And how are they connected to what has gone before? Well, Judah is the key. Judah is suddenly presented. Hosea, he's a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, but he brings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And what does he say about Judah? Judah walks with God. Judah is faithful. They're doing what those in a healthy relationship with the Lord do. 
They're faithful to the Holy One. When reading prophecy, we often forget that the role of a a prophet is to offer the promises of God and to provoke faithfulness to God. And that's what Hosea is doing here in a rather challenging way, right? We, we, We don't ever like to be told, you know, you should really be more like your older brother. But that's kind of what Hosea is doing with the northern and southern kingdoms, right? You know about Judah, Israel, you should, you should really be more like Judah. Nobody likes to be told that. But Hosea is trying to provoke Israel to faithfulness to the Lord. He's calling for Israel to abandon their covenants with the surrounding nations and place their whole hope in the sustaining grace of God. This is what God delights in. And this is what he wants from you, not merely after the exile, but now. That's what Hosea is trying to communicate. He doesn't want you to wait a moment more to be faithful to the Lord. He doesn't want your faithfulness merely after the exile, but he wants it now. Israel, come to him now. Return to the Lord now. And the truth is, is that this is what God wants from each one of us now. Not merely on the other side of discipline, but before and during. He wants faithfulness from us now. And there are only two kinds of people in this room and in this world. Those who need to come to the Lord and those who need to return to the Lord. So friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to call you to come to the Lord in repentance and faith. Turn from living according to your own counsels. And live according to his word. This is a God who loves his people. Who is patient with his disobedient people. Who pours out his blessings upon them. Who sends prophets to them and says, says come to me. I, I, I love you. Follow after me. Friend, you, you may be thinking to yourself, but you, you don't know how dark and difficult my life has been. And how far I've wandered. And how full of sin I am. But friend, what you need to know is that there is more mercy and grace in God than there is sin in you. He has provided His Son to be a sacrifice for your sins, to cover all of them. Jesus takes care of all of our sins. So come to Him in repentance and faith. The Lord God offers Himself to you and embrace Him now. We need to come to the Lord. And for those who have already come to the Lord by faith in His Son, We need to return to the Lord. This will be true for us in in varying degrees. Christian, Hosea was addressed to the ancient people of God in in their backsliding and idolatry. Hosea called for God's people to return to the Lord of love. And that's what this passage calls for each one of us. For we've all wandered away from the Lord in different ways. Maybe we have worshipped at the world's altars of work and wealth. Is our hope and safety and security in them? What if the Lord and his love took them all away? Could we say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do we need to return to the Lord and ask him what he wants us to do with our wealth? He loves us and he wants our return to him. Have we wandered away from the Lord God and gone after the lusts of the flesh? Have we been viewing and reading and indulging in things that the Lord God forbids? What might we need to cut out of our lives, confess to our God, and seek help from other believers 
Return to the Lord, for He alone can satisfy. He is full of forgiveness. He loves us and He wants our return. Have we dealt deceitfully with the Lord? Do we claim a a covenant with Him, but put our hope in earthly rulers and authorities? Your hope, Christian, is not in an election on Tuesday. Your hope is in an election that has already taken place in eternity past. It is settled and done with. You belong to the Lord Jesus and he will bring you safely home to glory. So keep putting your trust in him. Brothers and sisters, he will never cease to rule as king. He will never cease to be our great teacher and prophet. He will never cease to be our great priest, the one mediator between God and men. We have no cause for worry or for fear. Such anxiety could show undue trust in the world's rulers and a wandering heart. Return to the Lord. He alone offers peace and stability in his tumultuous world. He loves us and he wants our return. Judah walks with the Lord. So what might it look like for us to be faithful like Judah? We may have wandered away, but what might it look like for us to walk with the Lord? Who do you know that walks differently? Who might provoke you, like Hosea is doing with the northern king of Israel, saying, hey, look, look at how Judah walks. Walk like them. Who might be an example of Christ-likeness in your life? How is their life different from yours? And how might you walk like them to grow in faithfulness and Christ-likeness? How do we even go on a walk with a friend or lover? Well, you have to meet them because you have to be at the same place at the same time. So you need to meet with your God. Be sure to prioritize meeting with the Lord personally, privately, and publicly as he has ordained. Our God calls us to meet with him on the first day of the week, and we should not forsake that meeting. The cost may be high to our bodies. It may lead to sickness and death. The cost may be high to our reputation with the world. It may lead to greater displeasure and discomfort, but the costs are greater to our souls. If we do not meet with our God. And that is true publicly and privately. Better to suffer the world's displeasure. Better to suffer sickness and even death than God's displeasure. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 63.3 is true. Because the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. So my lips will praise you. We must return to him week after week and day after day. He loves us and he wants our return. Judah walked with God. What do you do on a walk with a friend or lover? You talk. Do you talk to the Lord? Do you pray? That's how we talk to the Lord. We tell him all about our troubles, as the old hymn says. Return to the Lord. Walk with the Lord. Talk with the Lord. He loves us and he wants our return. Judah walked with God. What do you do on a walk with a lover and friend? You might talk, but you should also listen. Do you listen to the Lord? Where has he spoken to us? As we thought about last week, he's spoken to us in his word. That's where he speaks to us. We read our Bibles. We return to God's word and hear his voice. Let's have fellowship with him. He loves us and he wants our, our return. We also hear God's voice in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. They speak God's word to us. Brothers and sisters, let's be careful not to forsake fellowship with the Lord's people. Let's return to the Lord in fellowship with his people too. He loves us. He, he wants our return. 
And in just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we have an opportunity to return to the Lord yet again. Here he invites us to return to him and to remember all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Here we remember and are reassured that our God loves us as his disobedient children. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Hosea 11 calls us to return to the Lord of love. Often when we we come back to the Lord, we forget that he is the Lord of love. He is eager for our return. Remember how he has showed his love for us. Like Israel, he has called us out of slavery and to Christ. He has taught us to walk in Christ. He has carried us in Christ. He has healed us in Christ. He's fed us in Christ. Because our God is infinite, he loves us with an infinite love. Because he is eternal, he loves us with an eternal love. Because he is immutable, because he's unchanging, he loves us with an unchanging love. His thoughts toward us, his words toward us, his deeds toward us are thoughts, words, and deeds of love. May we return to him what we have received from him, love. Let's pray that God would work in our hearts in that way now.